Well, today is a, it's a wonderful day. We've got a lot planned uh, based upon last week. But what I want to say from the, the start of this week is that next week is our semester break. Well, it's not really our semester break. Somebody already took their semester break. <laughs> and, uh, but next week I'm down in Houston at a pastor's conference. And since I'm going to be down in Houston next week, I had to start kind of getting into the, you know, the Western thought here and the idea. So got the old boots on. and So, yeah, that's right. Uh, I should have had my, is it a bolo tie? Is that what you just couldn't find it. I have to dig that out somewhere because I, I do. Well, I used to have one. But anyhow, next week, so please put that on your calendars. Uh, there'll be no class next week. So, which means I have to teach enough this week to carry you for two weeks. And we might be able to do that. We might be able to do that. So, uh, we got, gee whiz, Theron and Charles down front, both wearing ties, so this looks wonderful. Let's take a, a few minutes, as we always do, for spiritual preparation. Spiritual preparation is for uh, either confession of sins or simply relaxing and preparing to study the Word of God uh, and asking the Father to have God and the Holy Spirit uh, guide us in our study. So let's bow our heads, close our eyes, and then I'll open us in a few seconds in prayer. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the guidance of God the Holy Spirit. We know that without His uh, leadership, His conviction, uh, His indwelling, filling, and His guidance, Father, that uh, this life would be much different than it is, and we would not be able to understand the Word of God. So we're thankful for the, uh, the spiritual perspective that He gives us, and we're thankful for the Word of God that we have. We also pray for... One of our members in our uh, our other class, Jim Howard, who today is undergoing colon uh, surgery, colon cancer surgery. Uh, we pray for his encouragement, Father. We certainly pray for the skill of the doctors who are involved. And we pray, Father, for his recovery. So uh, as he goes under the... Uh, goes into surgery today. Father, we know that he is in your hand. And we also place this class in your hand. We're thankful that we have this opportunity. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, one of the things that I will uh, let you see here, and it's something that uh, the seminary is uh, is talking about or advertising, and it's for tomorrow night. It's Islam 101 with Joe Dibb. Uh, a, he's a seminary student from Lebanon, a missionary candidate with uh, uh, Pioneers. Um, that's a missions agency, not just a group of people who are heading west, just in case anyone was wondering. Um, and uh, I know Kathy can uh, probably provide a little bit more uh, information here, but uh, he's going to talk uh, about his, of course, his experiences and his knowledge of Islam, but also Islam's. Uh, intentions or their plans for the United States. So tomorrow evening uh, from 7.30 to 9.30 here, just location. All right. Uh, we are 
um, working our way through the book of Ruth. And last week, we had a question. And really, it was a, 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 an exceptional question. And it's uh, one that I'm going to answer. But what I want to do before I get to that answer is I want to give us a, a quick review and give us a, a quick perspective of the situation that we really find ourselves. We can say that Naomi finds herself, but I think it's always best to put ourselves in the position of the Bible character because we, we visit these same situations ourselves. Uh, and, in fact, that is the reason... Uh, that we have these examples. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10 that we have the Old Testament as examples for us so that we know how to live. And so, let me put this sort of in perspective because once I... I want to make sure that we understand the situation and then I'm going to go back and pick up the question and add a little bit more filler and then hopefully get back on track and hopefully this won't take me too long. But first of all, uh, as, a, as a quick review as we begin, uh, verse, we're going to be beginning verse uh, 10 here. But the family in Moab is really a microcosm of what's happening in Israel. And that's what we need to understand when we, when we begin the book of Ruth. Israel was unfaithful and disobedient. They had drifted from God. They had turned their back. We could say they turned their back on God or they left God. And we're going to see the, the uh, play on words with the word left and return and abandoned here, all in this first chapter. And they were, more than likely, worshiping other gods. Therefore, God was punishing them with a famine. And that doesn't jump out at us here in the Western world, but it would have been uh, easy to see for those in Israel who were reading this at the time. God is punishing them with a famine. The famine is not vengeful, nor is it vindictive. It is delivered from the immediate source, of course, of God's righteousness and His justice. So we would say that it's His justice that administers what the righteousness of God requires. What the righteousness of God requires, the justice of God administers. Whether it be uh, blessing for faithfulness or discipline for unfaithfulness. But we can also say that His righteousness and justice is motivated by His love. The family in Moab did not go to Moab because they wanted to get out of the apostasy in Israel. Now we can, I mean, that's pretty obvious for us to understand, but it needs to be stated here. They did not go to Moab so that they could worship Yahweh without being plagued by other apostate Jews. No, they go to Moab because they're apostate also, and they want to avoid the famine. Famine in Israel, we're leaving. We're getting out of here. They are so far gone in their unfaithfulness that they will leave the land of their fathers, the land that God has specifically given to Israel, and gone to a land that is truly despised. And I think, again, it's hard for us to pick this up uh, in the Western world, but as Jews, to leave the promised land is significant. And it's, again, probably beyond our perspective. Maybe if I was to give some sort of an example of this current day, it would be someone from A&M going over to Texas or something, to the University of Texas, if that's possible. 
And there's probably other examples that I could use, but you know, something like that. Maybe University of Maryland suddenly deciding, or University of Miami liking University of Florida or something. I don't know. But anyhow, they have gone to a location that no Jew would consider to do. So we see that they, they really don't care. They have no regard for God, and they have no real patriotism or love for the land of Israel either. I mean, they are really skewed in their perspective. At this point, Israel means nothing to them. They left God, they've left Israel, and when their sons want to marry, they apparently see nothing wrong with them marrying non-Jews. Now, if this is a problem today, and it is, Jewish parents want their children to marry Jews. And you can sometimes... Uh, cause a real hardship in the family by doing something different. So if it's, if it's that way today, then we know that it had to have been that way back then. So if it was a problem today, it's a pro- it was a problem back then. So unless you truly didn't care. And this family apparently just didn't care. Now, it would be easy for us to say, when we look at Naomi, because now the focus is going to be on Naomi. And that's where the real focus is. Well, Naomi was simply following her husband's lead, and she possibly had a strong faith. You know, Naomi probably or could have had a strong faith here, and surely she did not reject God also. You know, Elimelech's the problem. He's the problem. He's the one. He's the head of the family. This is a very patriotic society. He's going to move them, and so she goes with them. Well, I would think that we'd have to disregard that, because if she had remained faithful to God and did not want to be in Moab... As soon as Elimelech dies, she would have been back in Israel before his body was cold. But that's not the case. That's not what we see. If they were teaching the law of Moses in their home during their sojourn, Elimelech would have requested to be buried in Israel. But we don't see that. We don't see any kind of a return here to Israel. But he doesn't. And Naomi would have seen to it that... He was buried in Israel, but that's not the case. Instead, we don't see any of that. They, to be rather crude, they just stick him in the ground there in Moab. And then later, when her sons dies, die, that's where they're buried as well. And they're not that far from Israel. God is faithful even if Elimelech and his family are unfaithful. God wants them back, and he will make it so difficult to live in Moab that someday, somehow, someone will return. And that's what's happening in Moab. God knows Elimelech is never coming back. He even allows his sons to marry Moabite women. Now, that's not a commentary on the Moabite women, but it's a commentary on the the society and the culture in the Jewish family. I mean, they're that close. We can go back to, Mo, to Israel to, get, you know, to find wives. But they don't do that. But he's the head of the family, and so Elimelech must go. Elimelech must go. Elimelech dies, and no one budges an inch. No one moves an inch. We're happy where we are. We're here in Moab. We've, ha- we've found Moabite, Moabite wives, and we're going to stay. So God closes the wombs of the wives. No problem. We don't see this as God's hand trying to drag us back to Israel, even though Jews had been told barrenness would be associated with unfaithfulness. See, again, today we you know, would not see anything here, but 
as we have seen in some examples in the Old Testament, as soon as a a woman is barren, she believes that God's hand is against her. This is a very divinely controlled and divinely administered thing. But that doesn't seem to be a problem here. Now, since the future is related to what these lads can produce for their family, and they show no interest in returning to Israel, and they are now the head of the family, who's next? The sons must go. And so, the sons die. God takes them out of the equation. And finally, Naomi says, I've had enough, I'm going back to Israel. And then she says, oh, by the way, I'm bitter towards God about it. And that's her attitude. That's the attitude that we find as we approach chapter or verse 10. Now, to answer again the question, and I was asked a question about Naomi and how we can view her. And I would have to say that we can ask the question, now is Naomi a wonderful believer returning home because she's had a change of mind towards God? You know, I've now changed my mind. I have a change of mind towards all of this. We're going to go back to Israel. We're going back to God. Is she going home because she longs to once more be in His will and in the land of her fathers and the land that God had given them? And I think the answer is no, not in the least. She's going home because things are tough in Moab and we see that things are are tough in Moab and there's no longer a famine in Israel. So why is she returning to Israel? For the same reason that she came to Moab. Came to Moab because there's a famine in the land. Let's go where it's pleasant. Now it's tough over here. Let's go somewhere else. The famine's over here now. Only it's, you know, a, a, it's a famine of the family, we might say. So, we need to understand that as we look at this woman, as she gets up, as we saw that, she determines, I'm getting up, I'm going home, and she's heading for Israel, that this is not a spiritual woman filled with love of the Lord, singing hymns and loving life. And every now and then, and I understand that this is not the way this is normally taught. That's just not you know, the way it's taught. But I don't believe we can see that in her. She's miserable, and the only reason she's going home is because there's no other place for her in Moab. Husband's dead, sons are dead. What's left here? Why stay? She must find family and hopefully life will be a little easier back in Israel uh, now that the famine is lifted. And if we don't understand her frame of mind, we will not understand the conversation she has with her daughters-in-law. We're just not going to understand those. We're going to misinterpret them. Nowhere in their exchange is God mentioned in a positive light. Nowhere in their conversation is God mentioned in a positive light. Where does she mention God? She almost says, May God take a lesson from you all and how you treated me and my sons, and may you, He do for you what He has denied me. That's really what she's saying. She comes very close to saying that. The first time we see God invoked in the conversation in what I might call an unambiguous way comes from Ruth. It comes from Ruth. And I believe Ruth does it for a specific reason, and I don't think it's because she's already converted to faith in God. She does it because of something that Naomi says to her. And then she invokes God in her conversation. Okay, before we move on to 10, I want to go back to answer a question. And I couldn't be more thankful that the question was asked. Because it caused me to do a little research, and I hope that you'll enjoy this little bit of a 
of a uh, maybe walk through some of the scripture we have here. The verse that, that about the question that caused the question was verse eight. Verse eight says, at least in what I have written down here, and Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, each one, and the word there for each one really is the word for uh, woman, each woman. But we we translate it. We have it has the sense of each. So each one. Uh, return each one to her mother's house. May the Lord do or deal kindly with y'all as y'all have done or dealt with the dead ones and with me. So, the question was uh, to her mother's house. I left that out. I left out the important part. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, return to her mother's house. Uh, each one to her mother's house. May the Lord do or deal kindly with y'all as y'all have dealt with the dead ones and with me. Now, just to start this off, Naomi, I think, realizes or knows that the girls are not going to leave easily. She doesn't ask them to depart. She commands them to. She just says, go. And I think the family bonds in the ancient world were, were certainly very strong. And in the Jewish family, it was particularly so. So, what we see here is that they have a closely knit family. And I think that not only was this the way the families were built in those uh, days, but it was something that was even reinforced even more in the Jewish family. It's interesting that Naomi tells her daughters-in-law here to return to the house of her mother, to their mother's house, each one to their mother's house. Because it really is, as I said, what we might say, an androcentric culture, a patriotic society. And normally we would think that returning to your father's house might seem more natural. As a matter of fact, that phrase is used quite a few times. Uh, let me just give you a couple in case you'd like to look those up. But here, are, here is the father's house usage, and it's in Genesis 38.11. We're not going to go to these because we have our own verses to look, to look up. Uh, Genesis 38.11, we see it in Leviticus 22.13. Again, this is the house of a father. Leviticus 22.13. Numbers 30.16. Numbers 30.16. Deuteronomy 22.21. Deuteronomy 22.21. And Judges 19, verses 2 and 3. And by the way, it appears that Naomi's, or that uh, Ruth's father is still living because it's mentioned that way in Ruth. 2.11. When Boaz talks to her, he talks uh, about, you left your father and your mother in the land of your birth. So it's possible that they are still alive. <clears throat> Numbers was 30.16. Numbers 30.16, then Deuteronomy 22.21, Judges 19.2 and 3. Now, uh, some think that the author here is merely contrasting Naomi's Naomi as the mother-in-law to another mother. And so it's simply that it's a little bit of parallelism here. Uh, it's time to leave your mother-in-law and go back to your natural mother. And I think that's possible. Uh, and I think that's probably maybe even the more accepted way of taking this. That don't try, you know, don't try to read too much into this, Dan. So, that is a possibility. However, the phrase house of her mother is a term for intimacy. It's a term for intimacy. And so, I would expect the question to have come from this 
red-blooded American back here in the corner, Cliff, who spots this immediately. There's more to this. I'm just kidding, Cliff. Anyhow, the phrase has, is a term for intimacy. It's found in these parts of the... It's, only, it's, it's found rarely. But it's found, first of all, in Genesis 24, 28, when we're talking about Rebekah. I'll let you write that down. Genesis 24, 28, when, we see, when uh, the uh, servant meets Rebekah. Servant from... A servant looking for a uh, wife for Isaac. It's found in Song of Solomon twice. It's found in Song of Solomon 3, 4 and 8, 2. As the Shulamite woman is talking about her lover. First of all, it's in a dream. And then secondly, it's after they're married. And also a similar situation is seen in Genesis twenty four sixty seven with Isaac and Rebekah, when Isaac first meets Rebekah. And it's clear in all of these passages, although not as clear in the very first one with Genesis 24-28, that the context in the situation is related to love, marriage, and intimacy. So, let's take a quick look. And let's go to Genesis 24-28 first, just to get <clears throat> to look at that passage. This is the more difficult of the passages to... Uh, to understand as far as intimacy is concerned. But I think I see it from this, in a looser form in that it would be more natural for a young girl, and <clears throat> that's what she is, she's probably mid-teens, maybe a little older, but she's going to run back to the house and she's excited. And who's she going to? She's probably going to go see her mother and then her father. So we see in Genesis 20, uh, 24, 28. I'll start in 26. Uh, well, 26. And then the servant bowed down his head and worshipped the Lord. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his mercy and his truth toward my master. As for me, being on my way... The Lord, as for me, as for me, being on my way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. So the young woman, and this is Rebecca, ran and told her mother's household these things. Now, this is, again, this is a little bit looser, but it's in, I think, in the same category that she is going back. Uh, I think she senses more here because we've uh, in the in the build up in the context there it, there may be an 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 inference here that he is there looking for uh, a young woman. But now let's go to Genesis 24:67. Genesis 24:67. All we have to do is go to the end of the, the chapter. And we saw this, I think, uh, when we... Well, I may have referred to it at least, that this is a, a long chapter. It took Isaac a long time to finally come around to proposing. I don't know if he ever did propose, but uh, the servant does. Verse 66, And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into his mother, mother Sarah's tent. And he took Rebekah, which is a word for uh, conjugal love here, and, he became, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. So what does Isaac do? Uh, to consummate the marriage, he goes into his mother's tent. And uh, for me to explain the idea of the mother's tent here, in the days when, uh, in these days, in the ancient world, 
the tent was really the family, you know, the family home. But the men really didn't spend much time in the tents. And if, it, if they were there, they spent time in the fly portions of it, meaning the fly tents, the, the coverings that would be around the outside. The interior parts of the tent were really a place where the women and the children were. And you might find uh, a comment in uh, Manners and Customs of Bible Times. Uh, there's a picture in here, just a little casual reading that I was doing, of a tent. And it shows the tent. And you can see, this is they start it by putting the posts up. And then they put the major part of it up. And these, are, these can either be skins, and I think that's what they're revealing here, that these are probably skins that have been pieced together. And then it is fully made out this way. Uh, you can see up here is an actual picture of a Bedouin tent and they'll have it rolled up on the outside, but they would often have fly, what we call them, sort of fly tent uh, capability around the outside where you know, the young men, the sons, uh, would often sleep. And it says that the tent could be extended simply by weaving an extra length into the original awning and providing an additional hanging curtain. And that is, they would usually make these out of goat hair. So it was goat hair thread, then they would weave into a larger uh, cloth for these tents. And after it rained once or twice on them, they would shrink and they would almost be watertight. So it says, um, the only male allowed within the curtains of the tent was the husband or the father. Other men remained in the porch area. Entry of a male stranger within the woman's quarter of the tent was punishable by death. I don't want to read a lot more, but you get the idea that the intimate part of the the tent was the interior part. And probably if if that's where uh, a man and a woman, if if they were going to be intimate, they would go into the inner part and it would be seen as the woman's quarters or the woman's part of the tent. And there probably were some other places I read there were partitions within the tent for even closer intimacy, that where it was just that's where the wife's area was, and so we see that here with Isaac as he takes Rebecca into his mother to the, his mother's area, which is would be considered uh, private, off limits, and also the very it would be the most intimate uh, part of the tent. Now let's leaf over to Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon, we're going to go to Song of Solomon 3. And to find Song of Solomon, just find Isaiah. Find the big book of Isaiah and then back into, go back one book into Song of Solomon. Because it's easy to miss. I'm not telling you that because it's, I don't think you know where it is, but it's easy to overshoot this book. Okay, Song of Solomon 3.4. Song of Solomon 3.4 says, And this is the Shulamite woman. And she's actually dreaming. She's having a dream. Uh, she starts out in verse 1. By night my be- on my bed, I sought the one I love. I sought him, but I did not find him. And then she talks about looking for him, seeking him. But when we get down to verse 4, Scarcely had I passed by them. These are the, uh, the watchmen in the city. When I found the one I love, I held him and would not let him go until I had brought him to the house of my mother and into the chamber of her who conceived me. And so we can see that in her dream, this is her dream, that she wants to do this. 
the intimacy here would be that she anticipates uh, making love. And then over, as I said, in 8.2. And we think very soon after this dream, the betrothal is completed and the marriage is conducted and now they are married. So they're married and in verse 8, Solomon 8, we see, Oh, that you were like my brother who nursed at my my mother's breast. If I could find you outside, I would kiss you. I would not be despised. In other words, what she's saying here is that there was, uh, back then, I think sometimes today too, if you see a man uh, hugging and kissing a woman, whatever, and they're not related, you know, there's, it could either be too much, overt, uh, uh, you know, uh, public display of affection or something like that, or they, they had better be, you know, married. But brother and sister, you know, if they're good friends, hugging, kissing the cheek, whatever, is not considered to be you know, abnormal. So that's what she means when she says, and I will not be despised here. Uh, I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother. She who used to instruct me, I would cause you to drink of spiced wine of the juice of my pomegranate. So uh, I think you can see here again that what we have is a very intimate situation. And I don't know if this is going to cause us to go out and find some pomegranate juice or not, but uh, anyhow, I, by the way, I did read that the other day that pomegranate juice is supposed to be very healthy. So maybe it's something, maybe there's other uses here, I don't know. But anyhow, back to my text here. So we see that the with both the uh, Shulamite woman and her shepherd lover, and also with Isaac and Rebekah, this definitely refers to sexual intimacy, the house of her mother. So the woman, the woman's, or as I've said, the woman's tent or personal area was seen as private. It was a, it could be also a very, uh, very really a, a place of intimacy. It was a location that was often strictly private and the place where the husband and the wife had sexual intimacy. So what is Naomi saying? And you say, and we're, are we really stretching here or not? No, I don't think so. I mean, the context we have to understand the context. And we have now gone from Genesis, which was about 200 B.C., and we've stretched into Song of Solomon, which is somewhere around, oh, between 10 and 900 B.C. And it doesn't appear that the term has lost the sense that it had in Genesis. And so in between, we can probably say that it's possible that it has that same connotation. So, Naomi was telling her daughters-in-law in verse 8, to return to a situation of sexual intimacy. I think that's precisely what she was saying. She then supports this statement by saying, you may find security in the house of your husband. She goes on to say, you need to uh, move from this situation. And I'll talk about it a little bit later, maybe. Uh, but honestly, when someone, when a, when a girl or a woman married... She left her family, and she went to the husband's family. And they lived as families. They didn't live just as husband and, and, uh, and wife as we might see it today. But the family stayed together. So she moved from really a society of her parents to a society of her husband's parents. And so when they, she leaves, it's not as if all contact is cut off, but she truly belongs to a different societal group. And 
they know that that's where they belong. Just like a husband or a son is not going to get up and say, Goodbye, Dad, I'm out of here. No, you stay in the family. And so what she's saying, to a certain extent here, is she's giving them permission to do something that is culturally abnormal. You belong to this family. She's now saying, you no longer belong to this family. And we'll also see that it was traditional that if uh, for widows to find another male companion within that family structure. When the widow, when she became a widow, she didn't say, okay, I'm on my own. I'm, I've got to go out and find, uh, you, know, you know, start hopping the bars or whatever they are. Bar hopping, excuse me. Said it wrong. So, uh, and not that that's what widows would do. I'm, I'm being a little, trying to be humorous. But anyhow, so she would stay there. But Naomi is saying, no. There's not going to be any more sexual intimacy in this family. You need to find it somewhere else. Okay. And I think she was also saying, there's another way of saying, see, this is the mother-in-law. This is the mother of the two sons. And here are the two wives. And they're obviously been very loyal. They've been uh, very faithful. I think she's also saying, you're not going to defile my sons. There's not going to be any way that you're defiling my sons by finding someone else. And she's indicating to them that there is sexual intimacy to be had beyond her sons. Okay. We talked about uh, we talked about the Hesed here. Uh, so any questions there? Any questions on that research? That again, that was really wonderful. I enjoyed uh, digging that up. Okay, we talked about uh, chesed and how Naomi uses this word. Uh, that she sees her... Uh, she, she talks about the word kindly here, and she addresses her daughters-in-law saying that I, I pray that God uh, will be kindly to you, that He will have a loyalty, a covenant faithfulness to you. Not in any reference to God's standard, how God could be that way. But she uses the standard as how they have lived their lives. May God deal with you kindly as you have dealt here with my sons and with me. So the standard here is not God. The standard is a human standard. And we saw that Naomi was using the words... Uh, is using this word uh, in a way that it relates to what's happening in her life. She wants God to deal kindly or loyally with Orpah and Ruth, but she doesn't think God has dealt kindly with her. That's going to be the inference, I think, here. God has taken her her husband, He's taken her sons, and God has left her destitute. As she gives more thought to her situation as a widow with two daughter-in-laws, she concludes that this situation is hopeless. God has not dealt well with her. And so she's not in a pleasant, a, a pleasant frame of mind. She's lost hope. Uh, I said that if she has thought this far ahead, if she's thought about it, Naomi believes that there is no one in the immediate family that can fill what we talked about last time, and we'll get to this in the future, something called the Leverite responsibility. 
nor does she believe that there's a relative like this available. And we're, as I said, we'll address it later. Since that is the case, she knows that there's no welfare situation that will help her, though there is some provision in the third tithe. There are three tithes in Israel. And there is a provision in the third tithe for widows and orphans. There's also some provision in the gleaning in the fields. And the laborers are told not, of course, to completely glean the field, but they're to leave the corners and that which falls from the gleaners in the field. But again, we also saw that Naomi does not see any possibility of hope And she's going to bring a charge against God here. So that when we read this, we see the contrast. She asks that God be faithful to the girls like they'd been faithful, but she does not use God as a standard. She'll use the past performance of the girls as a standard because she doesn't believe God has been faithful. She says, May God deal as kindly to you as you have dealt with me, my two sons. And I think in this statement, Naomi reveals an attitude that we see again in verse 9. And that is the very next verse, because I've just kind of worked over verse 8 again. Verse 9 says, May the Lord grant, or may the Lord give to you all, to you too here, to you all, that you all might find rest, and then each one in the house of her husband. And I think what she's saying again is that you should go back to your other home situation. Go back to your people. Go back to the home from which you came and start over. Find a new husband and return to an intimate situation so that you may have your own family. And I didn't cover it quite specifically this way last time. But she's saying, we do not have a family. We do not have a family because all of our hopes for children and subsequent family are gone. They're simply, they've perished. Husband, sons, husbands, they've perished. Go fulfill God's purpose for you as a woman and make a family. That's what she's saying to them. Naomi is going back to her family in Israel or whatever she thinks she can find after being gone for 10 years. She's been gone for 10 years and she's saying, I'm going home. There's nothing here for me. I'm going home. And she's not thinking in terms of these girls being accepted and blended into her Jewish society. And this is where I say we need to continue to keep this in mind. She doesn't see these two widows her two daughters-in-law, blending or being accepted in her Jewish society. They're young and with new husbands might be able to start a family. Certainly, they, they certainly could, and we'll see that in Ruth. But Naomi is not anticipating finding a husband, but that is what she desires and hopes for the young women. So she dispatches them back to their own people so they can find security in the life of another husband. So, she kisses them, says she kisses them. I talked about the word, the Hebrew word, my, one of my favorite words, nashak, here. Give them a smack. And she kisses them, and she sends them off. Verse 9. She says, she kisses them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said, surely we will return with you to your people. So, here's where we start uh, in verse 10. Verse 10 says, and... They said to her, Surely we will return with you to your people. Now let me get my notes straight here. Okay. Now, this is a very sad part Uh, as they leave and as they are weeping. 
But we also see in in verse 10... Well, let me, let me make one other comment about verse 9. Verse 9, as I said, I think we see an attitude in verse 8 that continues in verse 9. So in verse 9, Naomi's remark about the Lord. She's, she's, she's uh, mentioned the Lord twice here, and it is the word Yahweh. So she, her remark about the Lord, in both verses, she could be seen as being somewhat resentful here. She could be seen as being resentful of the Lord and indicating that He's not been loving and faithful to her. In her first statement, she says, May the Lord deal fairly, loyally, or lovingly, chesed, with you all as you, have, as you have dealt with the dead ones and with me. So the standard of covenant faithfulness is not God, but the devotion of the girls that has been previously shown. And we've seen that. And the implication is that God has not dealt with her in chesed. Now, we have that first, and I think that gives us the indication of what the second statement might be. Her second statement, May the Lord grant or give to you all that you might find rest, each one in the house of her husband. And again, I think the possible implication here is that none of them, but particularly Naomi, has found that rest. They've all been married, but they haven't found that. The Lord has not given it to her, but she says that maybe the Lord, the one with whom I have a covenant relationship, because she uses the term Yahweh, but who has not upheld his part of the bargain will provide it for you all. And so I think we see resentment here as well in her two statements. We saw that the girls are deeply attached to her and uh, to, to one another and also to Naomi. And they've gone through much together. Naomi has lost a husband and sons, and these girls have lost husbands and now are about to lose a mother-in-law. And so the sense here is that if there is covenant responsibility, covenant relationship, it's being broken. And so it's being broken, and these two girls who probably plan to live in this family for the rest of their lives are now being cut loose. They're being sent back. All right, verse 10. Verse 10 says... And they said to her, Surely we will return with you to your people. Actually, it says, And they said to her, Surely, but the surely here has the sense of uh, the force of a negative. It's no. And literally, it says, No, or surely, with the idea of no, with you, we will return to your people. That's the literal translation. And again, this is, I think, a demonstration of the instinctive and the societal situation in which they find themselves. We are going with you. We've been with you for ten years. We left our family. We know where we're supposed to be, and we're going with you. There's a closeness, a familiarity, and a love between these women that have developed even beyond that type of relationship. So their relationship appears to have been a very good one. It speaks well for all three, particularly for Naomi, because she took these women in and they became her daughters. And at this point, they refuse and state that they will return with Naomi. She has obviously been kind to them, and they desire to continue the relationship. We see that Naomi does not give in because she believes that whatever awaits her back in Israel is not going to be attractive to these two girls. See, if there was any, and this is where I say we have insight into their spiritual status. If there was any hope of that, you know, if they if they were if they had faith in God at this point, then I don't think she'd have this attitude. But I'm focused on Naomi here more than them. Naomi has a tired faith. 
She has no real faith in God at this point and certainly no confidence that he's about to provide for her in a real material way. So she's saying, no, go, leave me. Now, I think I'll mention a little bit later on that there's probably a little bit of self-pity here as well because that's the way we are. And we get focused on ourselves and self-pity kind of bubbles up as well. No, leave me. Leave me alone. I've been abandoned by everybody else, so you might as well leave me as well. You know, I was talking to Scott last night. He says that's a very Jewish way of doing things. You know, try. You know, you say you're sitting. You know, you give your situation. No, don't pay. Oh, that's all right. Don't worry. Go on with your happiness. I'll be over here. You know, <laughs> soaking in my own juices or something like that. Don't worry about me. And honestly, if you can read this from a Jewish perspective, I'm sure, I mean, I'm sure I don't get uh, as much out of this as I could if I was, I was actually Jewish. There's probably so much more here. Verse 11. Now Naomi is going to really uh, provide two rhetorical questions that expect a negative answer. Verse 11 says, but Naomi says, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Verse 12, Turn back, my daughters, go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband tonight and should also bear sons, verse 13, would you wait for them till they were grown? Would you restrain yourselves from having husbands? No, my daughters, for it grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of God has gone out against me. Here we see Naomi finally gets to the core of her feelings. And the word grieves is the word for bitter. And we'll get to that in a minute. Let me uh, get us up to speed here. So, in verse 11, she starts with her two, the beginning of her two rhetorical questions. And she says to them, uh, turn back. And this is our word shoe for return. No, return. I'm returning. You need to returning. You need to return. I'm going in this direction. You're going in that direction. So return, my daughters. And it's in the imperative. It's not a question. It's not a, uh, uh, just a narrative. It's uh, an imperative. And literally it says, to what purpose? To what purpose, uh, my daughters? Why or to what purpose will you go with me? What could possibly be the purpose? And she's saying it's foolish to go with me. She's not really asking them to list any advantages or disadvantages here. It's a rhetorical question, as I said. Are there, and we have, uh, an, an inter, uh, again, a question. Are there sons in my, and we have the word womb here, but it's not the normal womb, word for womb. She gets a little coarse with them, and she says, in my belly. This is the word that means, it can mean intestines, it can mean bowels, it can, be, it can mean belly. And it says that they might be your husband's. So Naomi reveals by this statement that she was that it was customary for widows to stay with the family and to be somehow picked up in the family. And I think that was probably cultural uh, throughout the ancient world. And so she demonstrates that. She indicates that there is possible reason for her for them to stay. And if there were other members of the family, these widows would either become wives or become part of another family within that family structure. And that's what, her, that's what she's indicating here. So when women married, they completely changed families. And now they would find their, their future in the lives of their new family. And we'll see this also in the laws that, 
the, the codified laws of Israel. Again, Naomi is being very curt and crude with these girls. She's frustrated with her own situation. She's going to blame God for it. She's not sure of her future and is probably sarcastic and blunt with both these two girls now. No, I want you out of here. And she probably sees them as tag-alongs. Or, again, she's you know, uh, soaking in self-pity, and this is just the way she expresses it. So Naomi, who is, her name means pleasant, is not good company. And I think, as I tried to point out before, this is true of us as well. This is true in our lives. When we become disenchanted with what's happening in our lives, and we remain out of fellowship, we remain with those sins in our lives of being, uh, we wonder why God has done this. We question His judgment. Uh, we become you know, whiners, spiritual whiners. And we look at our situation in life and say, why is this happening? Why has God done this? As if God doesn't know what He's doing. And then, of course, we take it out on everybody else. And as I often like to say, when you find yourself out of sorts with other people, you know, why did He cut me off? Or why does He say that to me at work? Or uh, why does she say this or do this or do that? It's not their fault. It's your fault. You're the one that's out of sorts with God. Otherwise, you would be able to handle those things that are coming at you in the world. And so, as soon as we find ourselves out of sorts with other people, don't blame them and don't wonder what's wrong with them. Wonder what's wrong with yourself. Why am I out of step here? Turn back, she says, my daughters, again, command, for I'm too old. And the word does there just means to be old. I'm too old to have or belong to a husband. Probably the better phrase there is to belong to a husband. If I should say I have hope, and this hope means to remarry. That's, what she's, that's, the, that's the contextual meaning here. If I have hope, it means to remarry. If I should have a husband tonight and also bear sons. So what Naomi is saying here is that I'm too old to start over with a family. If I married, you know, right away, it's too late. Because if we look at Naomi, she may have married, let's, give her, let's say she married probably as, as early as she could. She may have married as early as 15. Maybe a little bit after that, but 15. And by the time she's 20, she has these two children. Well, the children grow up, the two sons grow up. So let's say somewhere around 20, uh, they have the children, or they're at least growing by then. Uh, men would normally not marry in their uh, mid-teens, uh, maybe late teens, but generally it was in their 20s. So let's say they marry about 20. So from 20 to 20, she's, uh, she's 40, and they've lived 10 years in the land after marriage. So she's, 50, she's probably at a minimum 50 years old. And for that time, uh, that is, that's old to have children. It's old to have children today. So that's the, that's the situation that she sees. She sees that she's not going to have a husband, she's not going to have sons that could be prospects for these women, and therefore she sees no solution to this problem because she's looking at it from the human viewpoint solution. She's got no human solution. And of course that's the human viewpoint solution, it's not the divine solution. Verse 13 says, Would you wait for them till they were grown? Would you restrain yourselves? And again, contextually, this means that you are going to stay here and not have the yearning or desire to go to another man somewhere else. From having or not belonging to, and that's the same word that we have there, from not belonging to a husband. And again, that's an idiom for meaning to remarry for them. 
No, we have this very emphatic negation. No, my daughters, for it, meaning the situation, for the situation is becoming exceedingly more bitter to me than you all, because the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And our word for bitterness here is the Hebrew word mara. And uh, it looks like this. That's a really poor rash. And it's M-A-R uh, M-A-R-A-R Marar. And it is the word for bitter. And it's the word that we see in Genesis when Israel complains and whines and they are said to be bitter against the Lord. So what we have here is bitterness. She says, I am bitter about the situation. But the situation implying God she do, excuse me. She doesn't say I'm bitter about the situation. What she says is the situation implying God has become bitter to me. I think that's exactly what she's saying here. When she says, "No, my daughters, for it is bitter to me. It is very much bitter to me, and it is more so for your sakes." That's what she says. Than your sakes. So again, she doesn't say I'm bitter about the situation. She says it is bitter. And I believe she's referring to, you know, obviously the situation that God has given her, but she's referring to the situation uh, to God as being bitter. Naomi says the situation is much worse for me than for you all. You all have lost husbands, but I've lost a husband and sons. And it's because God's hand is against me. And we've seen the word for hand here, Yav, uh, and it means his power, his authority, his ability is against me. So, Naomi's disposition here towards her lot in life is exposed. You know, she's had a chance to get this off of her chest. And even though, as we worked up to it, we kind of saw that there was some resentfulness there towards God, it finally comes out. It finally comes out that she's bitter. She's bitter. Now, I guess we could say she's a bitter old woman, but she's just a bitter woman who blames God for her crisis. And Naomi feels that she is the target of God's overwhelming power and wrath. That's what she's saying. Because when we say God's hand, we're not just saying that, well, you know, God's been uh, a little bit inconsiderate here. He's just not dealt kindly with me. When she says His hand, she's saying the power of God is against me. And I think that she's referring to the divine hand that struck Egypt with plagues, because that's how that's described. The hand of God brought you out of Egypt. The hand of God was against the Pharaoh. The hand of God destroyed a generation of Israelites in the desert. The plagues in Egypt was Exodus 9. So, the divine hand had struck Egypt with plagues, Exodus 9.3, had destroyed a generation of Israelites in the desert, Deuteronomy 2.15, and had punished the antagonizing nations of Israel in the land of Canaan. We see that in Judges 2.15. And she sees that hand now stretched out against her. That's what she says. 
So Naomi has identified the source of the famine, the deaths of her husbands and sons, the barrenness of her daughters-in-laws, and now their abandonment in Moab as the hand of God. I mean, she's got it pretty well pegged. She understands what's happening here. She just doesn't have it in the right perspective. Very often, that's where we find ourselves in life. She does not believe that anything that she could have done could have caused this discipline. Therefore, we don't see any guilt or confession on her part. Now, we now notice that Naomi is beginning to focus more and more on her circumstances, and of course she blames the Lord. And that's pretty much a progression. What was subtle before is now very overt. This is a devastating attitude to have, and that is to have bitterness. Bitterness and reaction to any kind of adversity that goes on in life. Naomi thinks that she has nothing to look forward to, and she now believes it's best to simply get rid of these two girls, you know, these two uh, members of her family. They're, I guess what you could say is that they now really become her responsibility. But she's not thinking that way. She no longer sees life as having any future, no future in life, and therefore she can't handle any of these responsibilities. They are her responsibility. And the, the two girls know that. When she gets up, they follow her. We're with you, Naomi. No, you're not. I'm going this way, you're going that way. And so she not only abandons you know, everything that she loves, but she wanders off and she abandons these two girls, even though they continue to demonstrate loyalty to her. They look to her for leadership and guidance and protection, but she realizes that she's not in any position to do anything for them here. She can't do anything for herself. She can't help them. She can't even help herself. There's also a subtext here, as I said, of self-pity. She said, God is not going to do anything good for me, so you might as well go your own ways. And she just divests herself of any of this responsibility. Verse 14. Verse 14 says, Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. So their parting here causes great sadness. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And so we are now going to see, here's a real change, sort of a change of the, of, uh, of the stream, of the current here in the book. The initial response, I think, of these girls uh, is correct. And it's obviously correct. They want to stay with their mother-in-law. That's where they think they belong. And their initial response to Naomi's appeal doesn't change. It doesn't change. They are going to stay. But she's adamant. And finally, Orpah decides to go. She's either swayed by the arguments, swayed by Naomi's arguments, because she understands that she will be very out of place in Israel. She says, yeah, I understand that. Or she decides Naomi is simply too determined. She can't overcome Naomi's resistance. Ruth, however, does not leave. And we see the difference between these girls. Naomi, I think, takes the natural course, and we have to notice that the author doesn't criticize her for it. The author says nothing. She simply, the author simply says, Orpah kisses her, and leaves. She departs. So Orpah is not criticized. We can't be hard on Orpah here. She's told to go, even though she says, no, my place is with you. I want to stay. But Naomi is determined and says, no, 
you're out of here. You're gone. I'm leaving. You're going home. So Orpah should not be criticized. But I think she's used here as a contrast to Ruth. So we see Orpah used as a contrast to Ruth. Ruth, on the other hand, decides to swim upstream. Orpah's decision to give in highlights the incredible fortitude, loyalty, and faith of Ruth. Qualities that not only become more that will only become more pronounced in the next exchange. So we see that Ruth clings to her, and we'll see what this word clings. By the way, the word clings here comes from Genesis two twenty four, and that's where the man and the woman, Genesis two twenty four. I'll just read that to you. Genesis two twenty four. Sometimes hard to get all the way back to the beginning of the book here. Our word cling is found in Genesis 2.24, where it says, Therefore a man shall leave his mother, his father and mother, and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the joined there is the uh, clinging. They shall cling. They should be joined together. And so she uses this phrase, or the author uses that term, because she's been joined to Naomi, and she's not leaving. She's part of this family. She's left her other family. She belongs to Naomi. And so it says she clings to her. And in Ruth, we see an analogy to the faithfulness of God. Naomi has rejected God and rejected Ruth. But both are going to remain faithful. And so that's a wonderful analogy for us. That's just like us. And we can't, you know, it sounds like I'm being very hard on Naomi. I'm not. Because that is how we respond as well to situations in our lives. And very often those situations are are the result of bad decisions on our part. And God is simply bringing us back to center. And we get uh, disappointed. We question God's judgment. And we eventually become bitter. But God's faithful. God overlooks all of that anger, all that disappointment, all that self-pity, all that bitterness. And he remains faithful. He's going to continue to use that tough love to get us back to where we need to be. And here's Ruth. Ruth weathers all of this rejection. And that's what she is. She's also being rejected. She's not only being said, no, you know, it's not going to be good for you in Israel. She's being rejected. Most of us would feel that way. We'd feel rejection. But Naomi says, no, I belong to you. And so her faithfulness, her loyalty, and her love are demonstrated here. And I think it's also a demonstration of God's love. All right. Well, we have gotten to verse 15. And next week, we're not going to start with verse 15, but we're going to start with the doctrine of bitterness. Not next week? Okay, well then we'll wait so you can absorb all of this from today over these next two weeks. Yes, we're going to study the doctrine of bitterness. We're going to... Work that over. And I've actually got it uh, written out so that we can go a little bit quicker next time. I'll give you a copy of it when we get started so that your hands you know, won't be cramped when you leave. You'll just be able just follow right along. That's part of the benevolence of the instructor. <laughs> Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dearly Father, we're thankful for Naomi and Ruth. And we're thankful, Father, that what we see in Naomi is what we see in our own lives. And she is the example. And you are giving us this example so that we know that you still love us, that your plan is still for our benefit. 
and it's for and it is a perfect plan. It comes from a perfect God. We're thankful, Father, that uh, we have this opportunity to study this uh, book. Help us to truly see what's happening here, so we can uh, understand the uh, uh, the abundance of the lessons, and that we might therefore apply them to our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.